it's my pleasure to introduce Mei Nye. Mei Nye is a professor of Asian American Studies at Columbia University, studying questions of immigration, citizenship, and nationalism. She's the author of two books, most recently, The Lucky Ones, A History of Chinese Immigration to the U.S., told through the lens of one immigrant family. She is now working on a book about Chinese gold miners in the 19th century North American West, Australia, and South Africa. Please give a warm welcome to Mei Nye. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming tonight, and thank you to the City of Los Angeles and to Zocalo for organizing this event. I'm very pleased to be here. It's always great to come uh, when it's still cold in New York uh, to come to Southern California, so I'm very happy to be here. Um, I'm going to introduce our panelists and then ask them some questions, and hopefully we'll have an interesting conversation, um, and then invite you to uh, ask questions and, and offer your comments uh, at the end. To my immediate uh, left is Dr. Franklin Odo, who is now the chief of the Asian Division at the Library of Congress in Washington. I've known Franklin, or known about Franklin, for many, many years. He actually uh, was a denizen of Los Angeles many years ago, and part of the founding movement of Asian American Studies at UCLA, and uh, one of the authors and editors of the classic work, Roots, right, uh, for Asian American Studies. In 1997, he became the first director of the Asian Pacific American Program at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, a post that he held until he retired last year. Uh, he's the author of No Sword to Bury, Japanese Americans uh, in Hawaii during World War II, um, and he's now working on a book about uh, Japanese immigrant folk songs from the sugar plantations. To his left is Sue Ellen Chang. She is the museum director and senior uh, curator at El Pueblo uh, de Los Angeles Historical Monument of the City of Los Angeles, uh, an institution I'm sure you all know uh, about. Um, she was formerly the executive director of the Chinese American Museum there at El Pueblo um, since its founding in 2003, uh, but that museum culminated a project of over 20 years of work um, uh, a labor of love, I would say, to promote Chinese-American history um, in Los Angeles. Um, and to her left is uh, Professor uh, Yunta Huang, uh, who is a professor of English at University of California at Santa Barbara. Um, professor Huang uh, received his bachelor's degree in English from uh, Beijing University um, and did his graduate work uh, in poetry at uh, the State University of New York at Buffalo. Um, he's the author of several books, including uh, Shi, a radical reading of Chinese poetry, uh, Trans-Pacific Displacement, and most recently, Charlie Chan, The Untold Story of the Honorable Detective and His Rendezvous with American History. So I'm sure we'll get to that uh, tonight. Um, okay, so our three, um, uh, our three panelists... Um, I would say all of us, all four of us, uh, have been involved in work. Um, if I was to, to use one concept, I would say that we have worked to interpret Chinese-American history. Um, uh, Franklin Odo and Sue Allen Cheng have been particularly active in the field of public history with the Smithsonian and the Chinese-American Museum, um, and we've all written books, both academic books as well as uh, books for the uh, popular audience um, about excuse me, about Chinese-American history. So um, one of the things that has come up uh, in, in the discussion of um, Joy Luck Club uh, in Zocalo's um, 
con conceiving of this program tonight was they talked a lot about um, uh, the long history of negative stereotypes of Asian Americans. And I think one of the questions before us is, you know, does the, uh, the uh, selection of Joy Luck Club as the book for the big read here in LA, does that signal uh, a shift in, in the popular um, representation or perception of Chinese Ameri Americans? Now, I'm not going to um, uh, organize this discussion uh, by talking about Joy Luck Club per se, because I think there's been a lot of discussion about that in the city, although if any of our panelists want to comment on the book, they're certainly welcome to. But I think what would be productive for us is to maybe take a step back from that particular book um, and think about um, how Chinese Americans have been uh, represented in um, American literary and popular culture uh, over the years, um, and think about how um, what that has meant over over the years, and also what may be changing about it um, today. So I'm going to uh, return later to the question of stereotypes, um, but I want to first uh, start by asking Franklin and Sue Ellen um, from their experience um, with public history. Um, I want to ask you uh, each first. Well, who who do you think of as your audience? Um, is it Chinese Americans? Is it the general public? Um, and what's the relationship between those? Um, is, are they compatible? Is there a tension? You know, ho, ho, how do you define your, your mission in terms of who you're reaching out to? Uh, being the Chinese American Museum situated at the El Pueblo de Los Angeles Historical Monument, which is the birthplace of the city, um, reflecting the multi-ethnic uh, backgrounds of uh, founding uh, groups in Los Angeles. Our visitors actually representing not just the tourists from all over the world, it's also um, have many local community members visiting us. And it's very, you know, uh, it's really uh, natural that we have visitors uh, not who came to visit not uh, Chinese Americans. As a matter of fact, we think we have majority of them are Latino Americans, given mm -hmm. the situation we have uh, a very street in our park. And, uh, so why do they come to the museum? They come to the museum, many of them, you know, by accident, you know, they were there. That's good, That's That was okay, actually right? good, and then the, uh, the design of our museum is not just catering for the Chinese Americans. Really, we were very happy to have the opportunity to share the, our experiences with the non-Chinese, who actually could share and then relate to the exhibits that we the stories that we're mm -hmm, telling. Mm -hmm. I want to share one of the stories that always warms my heart uh, every time I thought about it. Uh, one of the exhibits that we had, um, there was one Latino uh, father that in front of a group of uh, agricultural tools that are farming tours, tools that are uh, on display. And uh, he was so proud and pointed to, the, to his son and said, look, these are the same tools that I use in our farm. So that it really shows the tight end. You know, our experience is really part of American experiences and our exhibits really could you know, share with, you know, opportunity for people to come and uh, share their experiences as well. Okay, Franklin? Well, you know, when we started um, working in this field, and when, it, when it wasn't a field in the late 60s and, and 70s, um, you know, part of, I think part of the focus was on trying to reach our own people to, uh, to, to, to really get the ball rolling and make sure that there was a critical mass of folks who could um, 
benefit from and support the, the endeavor. Uh, but, but I think through, in, 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 in my case anyway, I always saw that as not a limiting perspective, but, but a liberating kind of perspective that would help um, us all kind of grow to see um, what, it, what it meant to be Chinese American, or in my case, Japanese American or Asian American, when in the 1970 census said, you know, we were like 1%, less than 1% of the total population. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very small group, but, and so the, the parameters of what we studied had to be broad. I mean, by, by definition, had had to be broad. When I started, when I left academia in, in 97 and um, took a post at the Smithsonian, um, again, I mean, it, it had to, there was no way you, you, could, you could simply, you, you know, limit yourself to an audience of, of Asian Americans or Chinese Americans. There is, by the way, at the uh, American History Museum now, a display, not quite a large exhibit, but a, a display of... Uh, uh, Chinese food in America, but that wouldn't have happened had the movement not, um, you know, taken hold in in the American public. So I think there is some change. My most recent posting at the at the Library of Congress, um, again, uh, you, you know, augured not well for really expanding things on on Chinese Americans or, or Asian Pacific Americans. But a couple of years ago. Um, there was a reference librarian hired within the Asian division. Uh, so let me leave it at that. So there are some changes being made. Right. So I, I can see the appeal of an exhibit on Chinese food to almost anybody who goes to the <laughs> American Museum, right? The, yeah. the History Museum. Um, but, but do you think that's the best way to introduce Americans to Chinese uh, culture and history? Well, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if there's any best way to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, any, any way, any way, there's a downside. There's also yeah. a downside to everything. Um, okay. we, I mean, you know, in the sense that if you can, we can go directly to say, okay, look, um, we've had a really terrible his experience of dealing with. There's a there's a movement going on now uh, called, I think, the 1882 Project. Right. To have the American people and the Congress, in particular, recognize that for the first time in American history in 1882, the United States Congress singled out Chinese people from China, along with um, uh, the mentally insane. Uh, right. Morons. Morons. The, right. uh, people with the, contagious diseases. Contagious right. diseases. For four, four classes of people, and the Chinese were the only ethnically or nationally named ones. So, um, you, you know, we could we could go, I and mean, there are pros and cons to doing everything. Right, right. Um, so let me ask this more broadly to any of you. Uh, what do you think accounts for uh, this increase in in interest um, among Americans in general? I mean, we have a great turnout tonight. You know, it's a mixed crowd, um, which I think is fabulous. Um, what accounts for this this interest? Well, since we are reading Joy Luck Club, I can do nothing about. Luck. It's, you just need to get lucky, but I can speak about joy, I guess. <laughs> and so much history is full of pain, really. And uh, in a way, the, you know, my writing of Charlie Chung, if you read it, in a way it's like written in a very lighthearted way. And I had a purpose of doing that because 
you, in order to understand the creation of Charlie Chang, you have to go through the whole history of racism against Chinese and how they first came, etc., etc., before you actually get to the jokes. But since you know Charlie Chan has somewhat remained a kind of a, a taboo in I think in, among you know among in the Asian American community, and uh, as a film character as a cultural icon, he kind of has disappeared for about 30 years. So I bet you know most of the younger generation here have not really you know seen or heard any of his sayings. Uh, you know we. When I first came to America, I thought I knew who Charlie Chang was because I inherited this kind of critical legacy of Charlie Chang as a negative stereotype. So in light of joy, I thought I, I will read just a few. At the back of my book, I have a list of about 50 Charlie Changisms. These are just one-liner Charlie Chang, folk, you know, fortune cookie Charlie Chang sings. And these are the things he said in, this, you know, in the films, in the novels, etc., etc. When I was finishing up, I mean, let me warn you first before I go on, is that um, when I was wrapping up this manuscript, uh, I, I had to ask 20th Century Fo you know, uh, Fox for permissions to quote. And the woman asked me, how many Charlie Chanisms are you going to use? It's like, oh, geez, like, I need permissions for this? Some of them are Chinese in the first place. <laughs> and she said, no, no, these are screenplays. These are screenplays. As long as Charlie says this, then you need permissions, okay? So she asked me, how many are you going to use? And I said, well, I actually I use about 100. I, not knowing I had to pay, right? So I said, well, I use about 20 just to test what and see how, how much I have, to, I have to pay. <laughs> so she came back the next day with a quote. She said, uh, remember, these are just one line of fortune cookie things. She said, for each instant, we charge $250. <laughs> it's like, wow, it's Chinese. I'm actually happy because, you know, it bodes well for Oriental wisdom, right? You know? uh, <laughs> Wait until you have to buy the real ones. You know? <laughs> These are just actually made in America, but they are good. Uh, let me just read a few, for instance. Uh, to give you a sense, you know, what kind of character he is, why he's so funny, and yet why he's actually so hated as well. And in a way, that's the challenge and mystery I had to solve in writing this book to, to answer this question, why a character who is so funny, yet so simultaneously so hated. Um, so here we go, just a few. Actions speak louder than French. <laughs> it's pretty good. Door of opportunity swing both ways. Front seldom tell truth. To no occupants of house, always look in backyard. Guessing is cheap, but wrong guess expensive. For wisdom like that, I'm willing to pay 250. Right? Uh, um, murder like potato chip cannot stop at just one. <laughs> it's kind of brutal, but very honest. Mind, like parachute, only function when open. Man who flirt with dynamite, sometimes fly with angels. So, it's things like this. I think, yes, Charlie Chang is, you know, uh, to a great extent, you know, was created by a white author, as you, you know, um, and Professor Ngai, you know, her first book was about this landmark and infamous case of you know, uh, uh, Johnson Reed Act passed in 1924 in Congress was after the, I guess, 1882 Anti-Chinese Immigration Act, this is really another landmark in, in anti-immigration bill. And Charlie Chang was created exactly that year when the country was literally closing its door to so-called foreigners. That bill, Johnson Reed Act, right? 
and you know, effectively stop immigration from, I guess, Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, Japan, Japan mostly all Asia. So it was when the country was closing its door to the foreigners, and yet there was a funny, wisecracking foreigner stumbling on the stage. And that's actually, you know, so as somebody who's kind of a new immigrant from China, who left China because of Tiananmen Square when I was a student there, you know, we're looking for, you know, uh, freedom to talk about everything. And yet when I f- first found this Charlie Chan character in the backyard in Buffalo, when I found these books, I was amazed. I was hooked, first of all. And then my next question is, you know, like, what a pity that there's a very rich chapter of Asian-American history and American history. You know, there's racism against Chinese, but somehow we cannot talk about it. And I felt really kind of p- pity. Well, and let's, let's uh, talk a little bit about um, how ethnic and racial stereotypes get produced, how they circulate, um, how important is the context of their production? Um, can, they, can they be resuscitated or, or recuperated at a different time in a different context? Um, if we think about the kind of stereotypes that we have um, been burdened with uh, throughout our history, uh, they're mostly negative, right? We go to the 19th century and, I mean, even codified in law, the, the Chinese exclusion is based on two stereotypes, that all Chinese men are coolies, meaning that they're semi-slaves, and that all Chinese women are prostitutes. And this is actually the basis for the exclusion laws, that Chinese were a threat to free labor, uh, the men, and the women were a threat to the moral fiber of, of white society. Um, and these uh, stereotypes have uh, persisted. They've, they've morphed a little over time. Um, I think there's, there's always been a stereotype of a, a, of a more uh, benign character, the houseboy. Um, but the houseboy was always a, a, a kind of effeminate, if not emasculated, character, right? Um, and so you had uh, the stereotype of the servile Chinese, right, who was, uh, could, be, could be comical or could just be a kind of um, a foil, right, for, for others uh, in a story. Um, and also, I think the houseboy was, was kind of like the house slave also. You know, he was the loyal servant, right? He was the one who would um, carry the master out of the burning building or, or some, some such equivalent. Um, now, I think uh, Professor Huang raises an interesting question. As you get into the uh, 20th century, the, the stereotype of Chinese in some ways becomes less threatening. You know, we're, we kind of leave the era of the yellow peril um, the, the threat from coolies and prostitutes, in part because exclusion has been successful in keeping out Chinese and marginalizing this community. Um, so then you begin to see kind of, um, uh, I would say maybe slightly defanged, but still uh, pathological characters like Fu Manchu, um, the dragon lady. You know, these are quasi-comical, um, but in a way they kind of are, are objects of ridicule. Right um, of kind of extreme representation, um, and I think we can we can understand Charlie Chan in that context. So I'd like to actually ask you know um, both Sue Ellen and Franklin how how do you think about this problem of stereotyping in the public history that you do? Right? How um, I guess that's why it's a little bit unfair asking you about Chinese food, but I think that's also a source. <laughs> of stereotyping, right? Mm-hmm. That this is all a lot of white people know about Chinese is, is the restaurants. So how do we think about this problem of 
of interpretation and conveying a more accurate picture of our experience in light of this long history of stereotyping, which ranges from the peril, the danger, to the kind of the caricature. You know, how, how do you think about that in I terms would, of your work? I would say that it's, it's very challenging, and uh, being a museum profession, you know, there is no uh, one exhibit or, you know, few exhibits that could dispel the stereotype. And what we are trying to do is to put out as many exhibits that is, uh, and, you know, telling the truth and sharing the Ameri Chinese American experiences that they invite people to come and to discuss it. And uh, the programming uh, is one important part of our mm -hmm. uh, museum, uh, you know, program uh, museum mission that we will get people to talk about what is uh, stereotyping uh, that is uh, not good for us. We recently just uh, finished an exhibit called Hollywood Chinese. And oh. that was uh, talking about a lot of posters and uh, how Chinese were depicted. And uh, through that, we did have uh, several programs and they inviting people to come and uh, visit mm -hmm. and to uh, talk mm -hmm. about the subjects such as this. And I think it's not going to be easy. It, earlier, you talked about why suddenly or Gradually, we have a new interest in the Chinese American uh, you know, history or our museum. Um, be very honest, that interest is gradually increased, but it's still not there. Many mm -hmm. people still come to us and thinking they're seeing a Chinese cultural uh, uh, museum that uh, they really do oh, not from know China. from China. Not Chinese Americans. It's uh -huh. a Chinese museum rather uh -huh. than Chinese American museum. But we are happy that when they come here, Especially now, China is again becoming much more uh, uh, stronger and a lot more interest. And uh, so, for us, it's a good opportunity for them to come and we explain to them, you know, the Chinese American uh, experiences here. It's really based on the communities, uh, true stories, and uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, stereotypical um, images that uh, people understand is going. Not, uh, going to be, you know, mm -hmm. balanced mm -hmm. out from all the truth mm -hmm. that we are trying to tell. Hmm. Franklin, is this also your experience that interest in, in kind of changing perceptions of China in the world and U.S.-China relations has a, a, an impact has a on? You know, not yet, but it will. Um, and and but let me go back and mm -hmm. reference the uh, other uh, question first at the at the national level, which I, I take it to still be very important in, in American society and culture that, that while those of us who were in the academy in the 60s and 70s and 80s did a fairly good job of discrediting um, our colleagues uh, such that I think not very many people, not, not just the conservatives or the right wing, um, have, have a healthy skepticism towards the um, what we used to think of as the infallibility of the professor um, uh, at the lectern. So um, I think there are very few kids who go to college now who think that they have to trust everything that their, their faculty members say. I know, I hate it when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> too late. Anyway, um, you did too good a job way back when. Uh, but people still sort of trust museums. Right. I think, you, you know, and, and I have mixed feelings about that because 
I, I know how exhibits are created. I know who, create, who creates them. They're people, just like faculty were. And, and, and many of the exhibits that people go and see and, and sort of suspend disbelief when they enter these temples um, are really um, deluding themselves. So, so uh, I mean, and let me just say, in terms of Chinese-Americans, because that's what we're talking about, if you, if you had gone to the Smithsonian's 19 museums, uh, you would not know that there were Chinese-Americans. Right. Um, right? Or major museums. So this, the whole thing of Sue Ellen's Museum or the Chinese-American Historical Society in, in San Francisco or Wing Luke in Seattle, these are new. These are really, really new things uh, bubbling up from our communities and the, and the efforts of people who really were fighting a, a major erasure of our experiences. It's beginning to happen. So that's why I say when, when there's a food exhibit at the American History Museum, that's a big breakthrough. That's right. No, I absolutely. <laughs> you know? Right. And, so, and so you can... You, and, and so if that exhibit will actually entice people in and see Chinese Americans as, as people and have really interesting experiences, then, then that's a plus. And if it, if it reinforces some stereotypes, that's a, a problem. Right. Um, I'm sorry, I, I don't no, want to dominate please, this, please. but I, no, no, you know, the, the thing about the, the power of China, that there too, I think, there, I mean, there are issues with, you know, I started my career, I, I wanted to be a China scholar back in the, back in the 60s. And then went into, you know, uh, Japanese history, and then into Asian American studies. So my my work has morphed uh, more than once, and I'm going back to the Library of Congress as right. a as chief of the Asian division right. now. And but I've always been interested in the in, in the impact of the home countries standing with regard to the the diaspora and and. If you're Japanese Americans, you have to understand that because of what happened in World War II and, and Japan becoming the enemy and the internment of 120,000 people. So there's no question that the, the rise of China will have an impact. Whether it's good or not um, is an issue. Um, whether China becomes a powerful um, uh, ally or an overt competitor or a military enemy will have a major difference on what happens. That's right. And I think another aspect of uh, this China question, I think, is that the, the, um, the composition of the Chinese-American community has changed um, tremendously in the last generation, the last mm -hmm. 20, 25 years. Um, and, and many of the newer immigrants from China, uh, come, well, they come from all over China now. They don't just come mm -hmm. from Guangdong province where... The, in the 19th century, most of uh, the immigrants uh, uh, came from. Um, and, uh, and many people now have very little idea about what happened in the 19th century. You know? um, and, and so if you didn't... Now, I think if you go to school, if you grow up in California, you probably get a little bit of Chinese-American history in, in, the, in public school. Um, if you grow up in New York, you would get very little, even though New York has a, a very large Chinese-American mm -hmm. population. So I think that there is um, uh, now a much larger, uh, a much more diverse community even among Chinese-Americans. 
Um, many Chinese Americans and Chinese uh, re more recent immigrants know very little about Chinese American history. And I also wonder if this also um, uh, has it, you know, that, they, that people bring different questions or di have different reactions to issues or history. Like, for example, um, uh, I, I mean, I wanted to ask, uh, I mean, when, when uh, Professor Huang said that, you know, when he first found the Charlie Chan books, he was hooked, right? Well, I grew up in New Jersey, and I, you know, I, I think perhaps it makes a difference that Professor Huang did not grow up in this country, and I did. I grew up where, you know, kids taunted me after school, Ching Chong Chinaman, and, you know, they used Charlie Chan as this kind of the, the symbol of, of offense, you know. So I have a very hard time, you know, um, seeing Charlie Chan in a way, uh, in any other kind of context, right? Um, so I, I, I'm also curious about, um, uh, maybe from a more, uh, you know, not just from a personal point of view, but from a more substantive point of view, you know, can we, can we take these stereotypes outside of their historical context? Can, can we take something like Charlie Chan or Fu Manchu or, or whatever out of the context that they were produced in and, you know, I mean, I think in some ways what you're doing is, is something what a lot of um, academics like to do is like, like to subvert an older paradigm. Right and, and give it a new interpretation, um, and and I want to I want to actually push you a little bit on it. Of how, can you take him out of out Not of that all, context? Actually. Out of that context. Not at all. What I think what I was trying to do is exactly to put him back in the historical context in the long trajectory of American relationship, you know, attitude toward Chinese, and that's why we have to start with Ching Chong Chinaman. Well, uh, you know, it is true that I didn't grow up in this country. I grew up in a foreign country called Alabama. Um, <laughs> that's how I first landed. I graduated from Beijing. I was already kind of adult, mature, intellectually mature, and then boom, I landed in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Um, and I, was, I thought I was looking for Times Square, but obviously I didn't find it. And, and I studied food. I ran a Chinese restaurant as a student. I did all my share of, as a new immigrant, FOB. And, uh, so I always try to write about that because that experience to me was kind of shocking because as a, you know, at, the, at least at that time in the early 90s, you know, the South uh, is still a very black-white society and yellow is an invisible, invisible color that will fall through the crack. It's because everything is so bifurcated, you know, they, can, they, cannot, they don't know what to do with you. So that experience is, really mm. helps me shape up when I found Charlie Chan and therefore I kind of looked at it again uh, to see this, you know, since we talk about stereotype, I mean, there are two ways to, I think, to deal with the stereotype. One is to, you know, do a real history, and that's, in a way, that's what I did, is to, to find, uncover the real Charlie Chan with Chang Apana, this Honolulu detective. Uh, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, he was the inspiration for the fictional Charlie Chan. So that's one way to, you know, and, and he turns out to be almost the opposite of this, you know, this fat and uh, wisecracking, um, fictional character, he's a kind of cowboy, you know, uh, walk around uh, dangerous beats, you know, Chinatown uh, with a coiled bullwhip around his waist, etc., etc. And the other way is, really, I'm a literary scholar, you know, I didn't start out as a historian, and uh, I do see how literature can produce stereotypes, but also, you know, counter, you know, acts with stereotypes. If you... I, I, I guess that's, I think, you know, I, I disagree with some of the more kind of ideologically kind of simplistic positions on certain things. You know, with, without, I think without racial stereotype, you cannot talk about Jewish comedy. 
I mean, there's no way. Without, racial without racism, you, you cannot talk about blues or jazz. American culture is predicated upon this racial ventriloquism. And Charlie Chan is a great example. And therefore, absolutely, there's you know, racism in it because that's racial ventriloquism. On the other hand, you cannot think about, you cannot even talk, begin to talk about American culture without thinking <laughs> you know, the toxic soil of racism out of which this artistic flower has blossomed. And just <laughs> this undeniable American fact. And so I think that's actually the real historical context for this icon, is really to look at how the making of American culture out of this toxic soil racism. You know. is, is that a hopeful interpretation? I don't know. No, <laughs> well, if you want to talk about hateful, for instance, <laughs> recently, I, you know, I, 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 when I first started contacting Chinese publishers about Chinese editions, what they said actually is that, you know what, like, we're actually more interested in Fu Manchu than Charlie Chen. <laughs> <laughs> That's China and U.S. relationship, the new age, because in the 1930s and 40s, Charlie Chan films are tremendously popular in China. They welcome this icon, right? I mean, that's yeah. like, in a way, taking out this historical context because people in China saw this really just as a funny Chinaman without understanding right. the exactly. racism Asian-Americans exactly. gone through. But, but that's how, you know, Charlie Chan's icon have been circulated, you know, globally, but also in a wide sector of, of American culture as well. And, and that's why, you know, you cannot look at this, um, you know, uh, icon in isolation in any way. But let me go back and ask you to clarify something you just said. Is Charlie Chan a product of American culture or Chinese-American culture? Completely American culture. It's American culture. culture. Absolutely. He's, not, he's not Chinese. But, but part of it is, like I said, because of the relationship to Asian-American culture, you know, this history, Charlie Chan grew out of this long history of American racism against Chinese, and therefore his appearance, that's why I said, in 1924 and 25 was interesting, because he really stands deep in, despite the fact he was created by a white author. The same thing, you know, Nigger Jim was created by Mark Twain. But you cannot deny Mark Twain's deep implication in Afro-American literature and culture. You know, you can't say, oh, this white author writing about Afro-American history, there's no way, it's all fake. But a lot of American culture is made out of this kind of ventriloquism and the imitation, really. Mm -hmm. so, um, so let me ask all of you, uh, do you think that um, uh, Joy Luck Club is uh, 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 historically progressive against Charlie Chan in terms of American culture? I would think uh, the uh, Joy Luck Club is a good book. Uh, however, it really does not you know, represent uh, even a small uh, population of the Chinese Americans. And so I would like to caution, you know, when we do the uh, reading of the Joy Luck Club, it's really just representing one. And of course, talking about, you know, how those popular um, images that created, it's uh, just uh, creating even harder for the, you know, the, the Chinese American scholars to even combat, you know, this uh, stereotypical typical images that we have. And in the Chinese American Museum, we continuously have to address different issues. And our museum is a community-based museum and uh, really reflect what the Chinese American community want us to tell. And of course, uh, many, many, many subjects, and as you point out, uh, the community is so diverse now. Uh, many subjects 
19th century, 20th century, we have currently you know, you know, issues of immigration. Immigration issue is never stopped. Right. So again, you know, we just have a lot more work to do. You know, Jola Club, I guess we have come a you know, long way to come to this point, and, but we have uh, much more ways to go yet. Franklin? Yeah, no, I mean, I, th I think the, the American public in general is sophisticated enough. Maybe that's wishful thinking. <laughs> it's sophisticated <laughs> enough to understand Those that who Amy live on Kemp, the coasts, maybe. Yeah, on the coast, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, Apologies, um, anybody from the Midwest. You know, if, <laughs> that if you, if, you, if you absorb Amy Tan, that you will understand Chinese American, the Chinese American experience of at least two generations of, of mothers and daughters. I, you know, that's just not going to be the case. And um, she's a good novelist and has sold a lot of books and enlightened people to a certain extent. Right. Well, I think she's a good writer, but my beef is that, you know, it's uh, no joy, no luck club. It's because my, my genre <laughs> is humor, really. And I think this is the most misunderstood aspect of Chinese culture in America. That's why I like Charlie Chan, because oh. he's funny. And, you know, the most condemning word you can use to describe a Chinese is what? An adjective that has something to do with table. Inscrutable. Yeah. <laughs> table, right? Inscrutable. You know, the inscrutability means actually you don't get out jokes. <laughs> That's why you think we are mysterious. And in a way, Charlie Chung actually cracks good jokes, despite the fact, once again, like Mark Twain's Jimmy Gajim, it's created but by. But they're not Chinese but jokes. <laughs> Some of them yeah. are actually. You know, you think. Um, this is a big difference. <laughs> so when you come to racial stereotypes, that's why we need deep historical studies of literature and everything. If you can compare the creator of Fu Manchu, Sax Roma, this British writer, with Earl De Biggers, this young Buckeye from Ohio who went to Harvard and wrote the Charlie Chang novels, he actually studied Chinese, Asian-American immigration history, labor history very carefully. And Sax Roma can make this shameless statement saying, you know, I made my name on Fu Manchu because I know nothing about the Chinese. You know, this is just outrageous. And you can see that's really kind of stereotype, right? And Fu Manchu is, is not just not human. Whereas Charlie Chang, he actually belongs to this genre of mystery. Since you earlier, you know, a lot of times we complain about the fact Charlie Chang is stereotyped speaking broken English, kind of like a woman, like a, a feminine. Think about Hercule Poirot. He's not like a man. I mean, he walks his penguin step. I guess Belgians should pro protest too. No, but, you know, detectives are, uh, you know, they, they, they're funny. They're eccentric. So sometimes it's a racial stereotype, stereotype combined with generic differences. And once again, you have to look at that, the making of the icon is in, a, in its own generic but also historical context too. But I will, I'll step in before you do, <laughs> before you do so. The, the, the thing that's different about um, the Belgians or the Lithuanians or Western Europeans in general, and maybe most of Europe now, um, including Southern Europeans and the, the folks who were uh, being targeted by the 1924 mm -hmm. Act, and, mm -hmm. but they were not cut off. I mean, there, there were you know, quotas that were deeply upsetting imposed against um, immigration from those areas, but they were not cut off. And, and so, so our, I think our sensibilities about different pe peoples coming from different parts of Europe are still 
um, nuanced enough by, by virtue of having different right. kinds of right. stereotypes offsetting ones that, that are not quite as, as uh, severe or exclusionary as the, the, right, the right. ones that were directed at Asians, right, I think. Right. Politically, you, it's hard to make an analogy between yeah. Belgians and Chinese. Well, I think I've been given the signal that we're out of time, um, so we're going to open it up for questions, and I think we oh, have no. people in the audience with <laughs> microphones. But I just want to end on this one note, which, is that, which we haven't touched on, which is the latest stereotype uh, that is our burden to carry, which is that of the tiger mother. Oh. So, uh, <laughs> but thank you very much for your, uh, your kind attention, and then we will um, have uh, microphones uh, for questions. Um, I just wanted to make um, an observation. I'm, I'm married to a relatively east, recent immigrant from Taiwan, and so um, it, it's always interesting seeing her perspective, as, as you described, perspective of a new immigrant seeing these sorts of um, things which we've come to call Chinesey. There's what's <laughs> Chinese and there's what's Chinesey. And Grauman's Chinese theater, Chinesey. Um, but if you go out to, you know, Flushing or San Gabriel, it's Chinese, most definitely Chinese. And um, it, it's uh, most, most people uh, we've observed, really, most Americans uh, crave what's Chinesey. It seems you know if you walk into a uh, you know a restaurant, a Chinese restaurant in Santa Monica, it's red lanterns hanging from the ceiling, uh, you know tapestries, people wearing chipaos. You go to San Gabriel, it's formica sticky tables and you know wonderfully delicious. <laughs> the food's better. Food. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, just 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 an observation. If if you wanted to make a comment on that, okay. when Warner Olin, the the Swedish actor who played Charlie Chan most famous one, went to Shanghai in 1936. He was mobbed by the journalists and fans because they called him Charlie Chan, welcomed him back as a Chinese native son. <laughs> and, and his popularity triggered the, the Chinese film industry to produce its own versions of Charlie Chan films. And by the way, there's a Spanish version too, in, made in Mexico. These Chinese versions in these films, the Chinese actor who played Charlie Chan imitated Warner Olin's imitation of a Chinese. <laughs> so, we are not that far away from, you know, from that era, really. You know, if we think about um, Chinatowns in, in American cities, you know, there's a certain style uh, to them. Um, there's the gateway, there's the, uh, you know, the kind of uh, motifs on the buildings, there's a use of a certain... Icons from dragons, but also different you know colors that are used, um, and these were these were actually invented. Um, I mean, actually, if you go to China, you don't really see architecture like this. This is a very American kind of architectural innovation, um, which took a, a kind of certain motifs from Chinese or, or Asian architecture and, and slapped them on uh, Western-style buildings. You know, Chinese. Uh, especially you know, if you look at um, things like the Forbidden City or, or things that are considered palatial in China, you know, the, the scale is very different, right? And they're not vertical, they're, they're horizontal, they, they're the courtyards, right? But in Chinatowns, in American cities, you, you don't have that because it's a densely populated area. So you, you have this verticality with these motifs put on it. And I think, you know, and the pagoda is, you know, with the upturned eaves is probably the most prominent feature. 
And these were, these were um, uh, invented in the early part of the 20th century, actually at the World's Fairs, um, at, uh, for these Chinese villages that were meant to attract people uh, to these shows. They, these were not exhibits from China, but these were midway exhibits, entertainment, like vaudeville exhibits, um, where they, they put on Chinese opera and they, they had Chinese restaurants. Um, and, and so this style became very popular. And in San Francisco, after the earthquake and the community had to be rebuilt, there was a concerted effort to turn San Francisco Chinatown into a more kind of wholesome tourist environment, where it had been associated with coolies, prostitutes, opium, dens, tong wars, etc., etc. So the leaders of the community wanted to have a different kind of uh, more wholesome attraction. Uh, so this stuck, right, and then it became replicated across the country, and I think this is the Chinesey uh, theme that you're talking about, and I think it's, it's a very Chinese-American kind of style. You know, I, it, it, it perhaps it was a product initially out of a kind of Orientalism, a kind of you know way to make Chinese uh, the Chinese community appear exotic and therefore um, interesting uh, to to tourists. Um, but I think now it's very much a part of of the Chinese American uh, community. So I don't I don't um, I, I don't I don't think there's a fence in 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 it, right? I think there's 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 a certain kind of kitschiness that sometimes gets employed. Um, uh, and so maybe that kind of pushes the envelope a little bit. But I think a lot of this Chinesey style, um, you know, it kind of goes back both ways. And actually, it was invented not by whites, but by Chinese Americans uh, from from this, these Chinese villages in the World's Fair and uh, those who tried to rebuild Chinatown after the earthquake as a way to promote a kind of. Um, I think the the merchant in in San Francisco who who. Uh, designed a lot of it or conceived a lot of it, said he wanted a, um, an oriental fairy, a kind of fairy atmosphere. It was his, uh, so it was kind of pre-Disney, pre <coughs> right? Or, Another, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, just very short. Or as Charlie Chan would say, to know forgery, one must have original. In this case, that's no original, what can I do? Yeah. <laughs> well. and another example is the Los Angeles Chinatown, mm -hmm. uh, you know, once the original historic Chinatown uh, were you know, raised and the Chinese were relocated in New Chinatown, the architects were hired by Chinese American and built this uh, new brand gate, new right. gateway and also the buildings. And it's not totally Chinese style, it's the fusions of the Chinese and the Western cleanness, uh, that kind of style. And one more just for fun, um, I was in Taiwan, and the 7-Eleven convenience store is very popular there. Mm -hmm. And I found the fortune cookies there and made in Los Angeles. And that truly <laughs> is uh, Chinese-American. That's Imported. great. Imported. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, when, when we started researching, I was still part of the Smithsonian when the Chinese food display uh, was being considered. Uh, we, we tried to find the origins of the Chinese fortune cookie. It turns out it's San Francisco, and it's Japanese Americans right. who, <laughs> <laughs> who created the fortune cookies. I talked a lot about stereotypes tonight. Uh, in more recent uh, films, I've noticed where, you know, it's a true story. It's about Chinese Americans, and then they replace it with white people, like. Um, in Extraordinary Measures, the two doctors that cured that disease were Asian Americans, and they got played by Brendan Fraser and Harrison Ford. 
Um, what does that say about um, America's relationship to Asian American culture? Or does it say anything at all? Is this just a marketing thing? Well, I guess it ties along into the long history of Hollywood's racial kind of casting, right? We talked about anime Wong earlier on. But, but what my question is actually, you know, look at Saturday Night Live. You know, they do blackface of Obama. How did they get away with it? I mean, they did him lightly, unlike you know, O.J. Simpson when Time Maxine did you know, the, the cover, they blackened his face. With Obama, they actually lightened up the, the, the color. But we all found it funny, not offended at all. You know, what do you think of that? I think in America, that's why I think Charlie Chan typifies this great, Ameri you know, fascinating American cultural aspect which intrigues me as an outsider coming in, as a new immigrant, as like a newbie is that uh, this kind of racial ventriloquism that we do each other. You know, sometimes jokes are at your expense, sometimes they are at others' expenses, or as Seinfeld would say, if you love their if, if like their race, how can you not be a racist, really? You know, but, uh, sorry, it's a joke. <laughs> well, well, uh, well the, I, I think... Um, the, um, I'm sorry, the, go ahead. It's not... Uh, I don't know, when they, when they stick on the based on a true story thing to it and then completely change their races, it feels a little bit more than a Saturday Night Live skit. It feels a bit more uncomfortable. Um, also, someone else asked me to ask you guys about the impact of Bruce Lee. So, uh, the impact of what? Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee. Oh, Bruce Lee. He was one of my heroes uh, growing up. Um, and, uh, and I think he, I mean, he, he kind of opened up a whole genre of, uh, of filmmaking to American audiences. Um, and he was, you know, he was, he was a man, you know, he wasn't, uh, he was a different kind of uh, Chinese in the movie. So I, I think um, he had a tremendous impact um, on, on American popular culture and perceptions of, of Chinese. Um, and I, I think the question of, um, you know, I think I, I didn't know about this extraordinary measures that it was based on a story of uh, Asian American uh, doc Chinese American doctors. That's that's really interesting. Um, I mean, uh, to me, it's kind of obvious, right? I mean, uh, a movie, uh, a movie with white leads has a has a much bigger audience, right, than a, the the actual story about the Chinese doctors. Um, although, if it were a story about Chinese doctors, it would be kind of stereotypical too, right, about the Chinese doctors. The United States has welcomed, and everybody may not agree whether welcome is the right word, but welcomed a large immigrant population over the last century. And there has been a discrimination, I would, I would argue, not based on race, but based on differences, whether it was the Irish-American or Italian-American or Jewish-American. Uh, so having, having, postulating that, that the discrimination is based on differences, I have two questions, kind of. Uh, one, you know, the Asian American kind of diffused into the rest of America slowly, slowly. Lately, there has been an explosion of uh, Hispanic Americans into this country, and it has created just equally violent reaction like in Arizona. My question, first question is, how does the Chinese uh, or Asian Americans feel about Hispanic Americans? And you can tell because you react with the, you know, the society in general. 
And second question is, how can the new immigrants minimize that discrimination based on differences, not race? We are not going to, you know, the brown-skinned person is going to stay brown-skinned, the, the oriental face is going to stay oriental face. Those differences cannot be eliminated, which in Irish-American and Jewish-American case, you can't look at a person and say they're different. So we are not talking about that. We're talking about how to minimize the differences that are based on just cultural or language skills or differences like that. I would say that the differences probably is not the only reason and uh, there, you know, we are different and uh, you're right, you know, we have a different waves of immigrants, they all experience uh, different prejudices against uh, them. Uh, when earlier I mentioned about Latino students come to the Chinese American Museum, heard about the discrimination laws and all that, and then we start asking, you know, what do they think? Does that sound familiar to them today? They all nodded their heads. Yes, part of it is also economic downturns, that we became the victims or we are to be blamed, and it's easy kind of scapegoating type of a situation. And uh, many of us, again, you know, back to we Chinese American have been here for over two centuries, and still they were looking at the aliens. Uh, they were still blamed for things that, that uh, happened overseas. Uh, and I, I don't know that really answers your questions because even the newer immigrants, they will be repeating that, and then that's why we want to learn about the past, how we were treated, and how we can respect differences. And so hopefully that will help to eliminate some of these prejudice uh, laws. You know, when you ask um, how do Asian Americans uh, feel about Latino immigrants, it's a hard question to answer because Asian Americans, you don't have one view. You know, it's a diverse community. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't think that can be answered uh, in an easy way. Um, and I think among Asian Americans, you have... Uh, we, some of our own people have, harbor racial prejudices towards others, and others uh, are much more tolerant and, and accepting. So I think you have a diversity of views in our own communities. But I, but I will say that in a more, um, perhaps institutional uh, level, a more organized form, I mean, you know, Franklin has a long history in not just Asian American studies, but also leading ethnic studies programs. And ethnic studies has, I think, historically been, since the 1960s and 70s, um, a project where um, Asian American studies, Chicano studies, or Latino studies, and African American studies, Native American studies, have uh, pursued our own um, histories and issues, but also seen the commonalities, right? And a lot of those commonalities have to do with um, experiences of, of racial discrimination and oppression, of colonialism. Uh, so there's a lot that, that's in, that we have in common. Um, and on immigration questions, I mean, politically, the um, Asian-American and Mexican-American and Latino uh, political organizations in Washington, the ones that do the lobbying um, around immigration, they all work together, you know, and there may be differences over this or that aspect of this or that legislation. But in general, I think, um, especially with Asians and Latinos, because yeah. immigration is such a huge uh, issue for our communities, I think there's a lot of cooperation and a lot of uh, commonality. 
think that's true. At this yeah, point? You, well, you speak of, uh, just very quickly, speak of inter-ethnic kind of uh, you know, sympathy. Um, I can only tell you anecdotes since I'm a writer, I don't theorize. Um, when I did an NPR on point show with Tom Ashbrook, we took a lot of calls. A lot of people called in. Many of them actually old Italian, you know, um, um, older Italians who grew up with Charlie Chan films or remembering their grandfather. And they always say, they actually identify, I mean, they were to, to a great extent for, for many decades were targets of racism themselves. And they actually identify with this kind of funny Chinese who often, who plays dumb, but he actually turns out to be really smart. And they all call in, actually, to say, you know, we actually identify with this character. Mm. So there is something, this kind of inhumor, which is very powerful, that can, you know, break through so certain stereotypes. Hi, my name is um, Lucia, and I think that uh, you all left off um, talking about uh, referencing Tiger Mother, and you didn't get a chance to um, do a conversation, I think, about something that affects my generation. In particular, I'm not sure if all of you are familiar with, um, I actually work at UCLA with the um, Asians in the Library incidents, the, the YouTube video. Um, and maybe you could comment about how um, the Chinese-American community has changed since the 1965 Immigration Act and, and new stereotypes about model minority that relate to a history of Chinese-American racism and discrimination and also conflates into um, a, a new Asian-American community today, Asian-American and Pacific Islander, right? And, and kind of what your thoughts on, on that are. My, my answer to that <laughs> is not, not just Asian mother, but you also have Santa Claus daddy. I'm a Santa Claus daddy versus my ex-wife with a tiger mother. <laughs> That's what I said to actually to Amy Charles' agent when I met her. And I said, I have a book for you. And she said, what is it? You know, her agent. And I said, my book is called uh, Santa Claus Daddy. Well, I am a Chinese-American mother. Um, and I don't think I was a tiger mother. Or I don't think I am a tiger mother. And my, my mother is not a, was not a tiger mother. My mother is an immigrant. Um, I, I think the, the tiger mother uh, question uh, touches on a lot of uh, interesting pr issues and problems, right? I think at one level it's a kind of extreme uh, manifestation of um, model minority as a pathology, right? Uh, you know, you, you think that a Asians are good in math, play the violin, et cetera, et cetera. Well, this is how they got there. You know, they were tortured by, by their mothers, right? Um, <laughs> Uh, but I think there's also it also but it, it also opens up um, a lot of anxieties. Uh, you know, I mean, it's interesting. You know, when um, President Obama gave his State of the Union address and he talked about this generation's Sputnik moment, right? And he looked at technology mm. industries in India and China as the new competition, right? And and, and this hand wringing again, you know, as it was after Sputnik in 1957 over the state of American education, right? Um, and so I think that there's this idea, right? And there was a thing in the news about how uh, the students in Shanghai uh, scored the highest and any students anywhere in the world. Well, that was one very elite school in Shanghai. It's not that all Chinese students are scoring the highest um, in the entire world. And I think one of the problems uh, Americans have with this model minority idea is that they don't understand the demographic composition of Chinese Americans, also Korean Americans, and India, uh, South Asian Americans uh, since the 1970s. It's a very, uh, the immigration laws themselves, in fact, um, promoted a selection of certain classes of people to come here, 
right? So the immigration laws in 1965 favored professional and, and highly skilled immigrants, um, and, and, and then also immigrants with, who had family members. Well, because Asian Americans were a relatively small population, there weren't that many people who could avail themselves of the family categories. So most of the Asians that came in the first wave after 1965 came from the professional uh, and technical classes. That's because that's the only people who could come, right? The after they came, those people could bring their relatives over, but they were bringing people from the so same social backgrounds, right? So you had a, a skewing in the, uh, the class structure of these communities. And when people say, oh, I didn't realize that. But if you think about it, I mean, do, you, do people really think that a, you have a billion uh, doctors in India? <laughs> or a billion mathematicians in China? No, China is still a poor country, or, right? Or that this, they can all spell? Oh, that they can, yeah, you know, so, um, or that, so I think that, you know, this is, um, uh, you know, what, what is actually the product of a, of a certain policy decisions and, and, and legal structures um, and then structures of migration has become mm -hmm. misunderstood as a culture, right? That, that Asians value education. Well, you know, if you go, I mean, Asians do value education, but I don't know that they value education culturally more so than other, other groups, right? And I think most, actually most immigrant groups um, understand the importance of education because that's how they see that their children in America are going to get ahead. So I think in many ways, um, when I first read uh, the excerpts from the Tiger Mother, because I, I confess I haven't read the whole book, and I don't know if I, I plan to, but I've read enough about it uh, that I, I can you know, sit here before you and speak authoritatively about it. Um, but I think you know, in many ways, the Tiger Mother to me remind. I mean, I live in New York City, I live in Manhattan, and the tiger mother, to me, reminded me of um, uh, you know, upper-middle-class uh, white families who um, you know, have coaches for their children so they can get into the right nursery school, uh, who tutor them for their SATs starting when they're eight years old, um, who, who organize every moment of their time. I mean, there's a certain kind of um, upper-middle-class parenting um, that has maybe different styles or different inflections depending on the ethnicity, but it's all about, you know, the achievement of the child as a kind of social status marker. And, um, and I don't think that's uh, particular to Chinese, you know, I think this is uh, in many ways a class phenomenon. Um, and, uh, and so I, anyway, so I, I, think, I, I think it's a pernicious kind of um, a stereotype that's being promoted. And, you know, I, well, I'll just end with this. I, I, went, to, I went to a very fancy dinner at my university and I sat at a table with um, you know, prominent professors, and, uh, and, and I was talking to them and, and their wives, who were uh, professionals themselves and, and very well educated, and, and they said to me, you know, they, they love the tiger mother, they wish that they had been tiger mothers, and they said, well, we all know it's true, right, that Chinese have a higher IQ than anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, actually, I actually... I actually disagree. What, so you're going to tell us what Go Charlie ahead. Chan no, has to disagree. say about no. IQ, right? No. I think, you know, Tiger Mother in, in America is a class thing, but in China, it's a Chinese thing. <laughs> it's true, in China, every mother is almost, it's not a class 
it, it breaks through all classes. <laughs> but not every yeah. mother in China is. No, if you have mother. to look at the kids, school age kids now, they, the the way they study, you know, they crank, they to- they're tortured by their parents. It doesn't matter whether now your family is rich or not. It's, it's true. I think yeah. it's a middle yeah. class thing in China. Yeah. That's an urban well, thing. I That's an urban middle class in China today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and then I want to say actually to dis- you know whether it's dispel the negative images or. You know, modern minority, some people think it's positive, a stereotype. It's really just uh, to invite everyone to come and share the stories and even talking about emphasizing education. All my friends who are, whether Latinos or African-Americans, they value education just as much as we do. And I don't really think uh, it is uh, uh, true. And uh, again, I, if I may, I can use this uh, as uh, you know, commercial time. Uh, we do invite everyone to come to the Chinese American Museum. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.